You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Beginning with this new year, we have been working through a sermon series in the book of Acts. And just as a reminder, we are studying this book because we are celebrating this year our 10-year anniversary. And it is often the case that as churches age, they begin to become ingrown and inwardly focused and really giving their attention to inside while they forget the neighbors and forget their mission. And so it's critical that at this juncture in the life of our church, we give our attention to focusing on maintaining our missionary identity and exploring the dynamics of mission so that our next 10 years are as fruitful and faithful as our last 10 years. Amen? And last week, we studied the healing ministry of the church by looking at Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, where Peter and John go to the temple and they heal a lame man who is begging for alms at the beautiful gate. And we noted that the church embraced this healing ministry as a critical component of their mission because first, they had the example of Jesus' healing ministry. And these Christians understood their calling to be a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. Second, they had the personal experience. So they didn't just have the example of Jesus. They had the experience of Jesus' healing ministry, which transformed them and motivated them to take up this work. And then finally, they knew that if they were to meaningfully minister to a wounded world, then they would have to be a community of healing. We saw last week that they were present with their wounded neighbors. They perceived their wounded neighbors. They provided for their wounded neighbors. And as a result... Many people came to know Jesus as their healer because they first came to know the church as a place of healing. Today, we're going to look at the next scene in this one connected narrative because it gives us an important framework for mission. There's a dynamic working out here that is vital if we are going to faithfully and fruitfully participate in God's mission. So we're going to approach this text through two points as we consider making a way for the word and making our appeal to the world. Those are our two points, making a way for the word and making our appeal to the world. So let's look at our first point, making a way for the word. Now, this scene opens with the healed man clinging to Peter and John as all the people, utterly astonished, came racing to them to see what it was that happened with this amazing healing. They had questions. They wanted to know how this all took place. Well, what's going on here? And it's important to notice how Peter analyzes things and responds as this situation unfolds. He, he doesn't take the credit nor does he bask in the praise of the people as they marvel at his healing ministry. He could have brushed his shoulders off a bit and be like, yeah, 
I did that thing, right? But he immediately, what you notice is that he immediately directs all the glory to God for the man's healing. And then he begins to bear witness with the opportunity before him. You see, Peter realized that his healing ministry had made room for the word to go out. You see, Peter knew that it was very difficult for his neighbors to believe in a crucified Messiah who was raised from the dead and who was now alive and active in the world. He knew that it was hard for his neighbors to believe that Jesus is Lord of all and the Savior of the world. But he also recognized that their healing ministry lent credibility to the message of Christ. To put it another way, the healing ministry made the gospel more believable for their neighbors, and the same is true today. We know that it's very difficult for our neighbors to believe in a crucified Jewish Messiah who was raised from the dead and who is now alive and active in the world. We know it's difficult for our neighbors to believe that Jesus is Lord and that he's the Savior of the world. But we need to understand the dynamics of why it's hard for them. Why is it hard? This is one of those things where this series is, is not just going to be preachy, but there are times where it needs to get a little teachy. We need to get missionary paradigms in place that we can then pull on to help us to be faithful in different encounters that we're facing and in big decisions that we're making, and frankly, in how we order our lives in the world, and more specifically, how we order our life in this neighborhood. Every culture has what sociologists call plausibility structures that determine which ideas are believable to its members and which ideas are not believable. In any society, when a belief is held to be reasonable or believable, it is a judgment based upon the reigning plausibility structure. Somebody say plausibility structure. Plausibility structures filter out claims that we believe cannot be reasonable or even potentially true. And here's the thing. Plausibility structures don't necessarily tell us if a claim is true. Only that the truth of the claim appears to be plausible enough for us to accept or that the claim is so implausible to us that we must reject it. Plausibility structures can prevent us from forming beliefs that are inconsistent with experience and evidence. But they can also have a negative impact by preventing us from forming true beliefs about reality. Everyone in here has a plausibility structure where you, through that grid, determine what is believable to you and what is not believable to you. And guess what? It's deeply cultural. It's deeply social. Let me give you an example. If I were to find a box of cookies in my kitchen cabinet, I would assume that my wife, Vanessa, in a moment of mercy, <laughs> bought those for me at the grocery store and placed them there herself. If someone were to argue that tree-dwelling Keebler elves baked the cookies, packaged them for a corporate employer, and then stashed them in my pantry, I would have a difficult time believing that claim because of the, the existence of a unionized tree-dwelling elf family 
is simply not a part of my plausibility structure. That is completely unbelievable to me because of my plausibility structure. I'm going to give you another example. Because we got a bunch of scientists out here trying to be contextual. Those of you who know me know how far exceeding anything related to math and science is for me. I'm still struggling to do long division. Do you realize that there was a time when miasma theory was the predominant theory of disease transmission? And this theory held that diseases such as cholera, chlamydia, or the Black Death were caused by a miasma, which is a Greek word for pollution. They believed that diseases were transmitted by a noxious form of bad air emanating from rotten organic matter. People once believed that foul odors could create disease up into the 18th century. The idea that microorganisms called pathogens or germs led to disease was considered bonkers and was rejected by the vast majority of people. But through the work of Louis Pasteur and other scientists, our plausibility structure changed. And now we wash our hands. And now we get paranoid if we don't have, uh, and all the scientists said, amen. All right. Amen. Now we wash our hands and we feel paranoid if we don't have our hand sanitizer on us. What happened? The plausibility structure shifted. Conversely, in a society dominated by the scientific method, any talk of God, the miraculous, and the supernatural are considered unreasonable because they don't fit into the plausibility structure of our culture. By accepting a plausibility structure that is limited to purely naturalistic explanations, many of our neighbors have self-imposed a, a limiting and irrational criteria for explaining reality. Everything comes from nothing irrational. The same is true for the small segment of atheists who truly believe that it's implausible that God exists. And oddly enough, this is a little sidebar. While atheism is a minority view and has been so through the vast majority of history, it is assumed that pluralism requires that we adopt it as the default plausibility structure for almost all areas of human culture. Think about that. Everything from science and education to politics and public policy is required to begin with the assumption that either God does not exist or that his existence is irrelevant and must not be taken into account. Have you noticed that? In fact, many of our neighbors, and maybe some of you, believe that functional atheism is the neutral ground from which all issues much, must be approached. But if God exists and he is capable of revealing himself and his purposes to human beings, then we must understand and respond to this revelation and relate it to everything else. The, here's what I'm saying to you. The gospel gives rise to a new plausibility structure, a radically different vision of the world and our lives in the world. But what does this have to do with our text, you may be thinking? Thanks for that. What does this got to do with the Bible? <clears throat> Let me tell you. 
when the people, notice in the text, when the people gather to see the impact of the healing ministry of the church on this man's life, it works on their plausibility structure. They were not prone to think that this was a likely circumstance. But it works on their plausibility structure. So when Peter preaches to them, the message that would have been totally unbelievable before the healing is now believable to them, and many come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? It was implausible to them at the time, prior to the healing, that Jesus Christ was Lord of all and raised from the dead and alive and reigning. That was implausible. But the healing ministry of the church began to work on their plausibility structures so that they became open to considering this claim that Jesus was Lord of all, raised from the dead. And then they end up coming to faith. Do you see the chain, the development here? What I'm suggesting is that when Peter preaches to them, following on the heels of the healing ministry of the church, it's a powerful combination that begins to open up the shades in the houses of their non-Christian neighbors so that the light can begin to come in. And I'm suggesting to you that the same is true today. The healing ministry of the church actually works on the plausibility structures of our neighbors. As more and more people experience healing through the love and care of the church, the message of the gospel becomes more believable. The Holy Spirit blesses our good works to validate his good word. That's the key. This isn't just a natural chain of events that we can take matters into our own hands and force things to happen. We know that the Spirit must open the eyes and the hearts of our neighbors, but he's pleased to use and bless the healing ministry of the church to help our neighbors to see Jesus as more believable. But it's also true, and we know this, it's also true that when we fail to live as God's people, when our lives are inconsistent with our message and we neglect our wounded neighbors, it makes the gospel that much more unbelievable. So I want to ask you a question, and I want you to take this with you. Does your life make the gospel of Jesus Christ more believable? Does our corporate life together make the gospel of Jesus Christ more believable to our non-Christian neighbors? I want to be clear that the failures of the church do not debunk the truth claims of Jesus Christ. Eyewitnesses to the resurrection gave their lives and saw a movement grow from 20,000 to 20 million in 200 years. That's nuts. It wasn't grounded on their imagination or collective hallucination. It was grounded in the eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is factual. Now, our life as the church can align more or less with that message, and it will have implications for our witness in the world. But what I'm suggesting is that there's something important for us to consider as it relates to our missional dynamic in this place. 
we must continually revisit that question for ourselves. Does my life make the gospel of Jesus Christ more believable? And we as a community, when we get together in community groups, when we're chopping it up together, we must constantly be processing through this question. Does our life together make the gospel of Jesus Christ more believable? I think there's something really compelling about Grace Mosaic. I really do. But I don't want us to rest on our laurels. I don't want us to, to start chillaxing, as the young people say. Okay? I want us to continue to press on in faith and hope and love for the sake of God's mission and the redemption of our neighbors, their healing, holistically so. But we must also bear in mind that when the opportunity to bear witness arises, Peter is faithful to hold out the good news. And so must we be. So must we be. So let's look at our final point. Making our appeal to the world. When Peter preaches at Pentecost, Scripture is his jumping off point for his sermon. But in this second sermon, in chapter 3, the lame man's healing becomes the jumping off point for the sermon, which eventually comes back to the scriptures. What you see is that verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3 are the event. And then our passage for today is the evangelistic explanation. It, it, the healing of the man, the healing ministry becomes a launch pad to the proclamation of the gospel. Because the people want to know, how did this happen? What happened to this man? Inquiring minds want to know. They want to know what's going on. Who or what made this possible? And according to Peter, if one understands where Jesus is and what his exalted position means then one can understand the healing. And if you compare the two sermons, the sermon that Peter preaches at Pentecost and then the sermon that he preaches in chapter 3, there is a lot of overlap. Essentially, it's the same message that he just preached. It's culturally contextual for his beloved Jewish audience, which, by the way, it's important that we say this. A lot of people, through the history of the church, have used this passage for the purposes of anti-Semitic behavior and thinking toward our Jewish neighbors. This is completely unfounded and ungodly. What is happening is that Peter is not laying this charge on them by virtue of their Jewishness. He is implicating everyone that played a role. It was the Roman authorities, it was the religious leaders in the Sanhedrin, and then it was the people who cried out when Pilate was going to release, crucify him, crucify him, and let Barabbas go. It was not because of their Jewishness. We as God's people must reject that thinking, that anti-Semitism, and leave no quarter for it, so long as it's in our power to correct it and lean against it. Amen? Amen. It's important. He doesn't lay this on them by virtue of their Jewishness. It's culturally contextual for his beloved Jewish audience. He uses these shared personal pronouns, our fathers. He puts himself in the same boat with them. 
It's also compassionately confrontational. That's something we need to be thinking about. We like compassion. We don't like confrontation. We need to grow through these little hiccups in our hearts. That's a gentle way of putting it. You might say we need to repent of our cowardice. And we need to reorient our minds. Peter is compassionately confrontational as he names their sins and calls them to repent and also calls them to be refreshed by the Lord. But it's essentially the same message, the same sermon, and Peter preaches it boldly. He preaches it boldly. In fact, many of you might find this sermon a bit harsh to your ears. I'm going to venture to say that the problem is with our ears, not with his sermon. Because you see, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be ashamed about regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ that would make me conceal it from my neighbors. I'm still trying to figure this out. Is it his breathtaking love that would lead him to bear the death penalty that I deserved for my sin as my substitute? Is it his teaching that calls me out of the sins that are killing me and wounding my neighbors so that I can live in light of his resurrection for the benefit of my neighbors? Is it his judgment that will justly and effectively deal with every evil and injustice? It is, his, is it his message that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him? What exactly am I supposed to be ashamed about? What are you supposed to be ashamed about? I ask you, spoiler alert, there is nothing for us to be ashamed about. And I don't know about you, but I'm with the Apostle Paul when he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Why? Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And that is why it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's good news and nothing to be ashamed of. And I want to remind you that every single person that you know is very bold with what they believe. It just so happens that the reigning plausibility structure of our age is friendly toward the way they think and not toward the way we think. But I'm supposed to. To be ashamed when they come with the double standard? Why are you so preachy with your faith? And I want to know, why are you so preachy with your faith? You are no less dogmatic than I am. And you are no less faith-filled than I am. What I would propose is that I have real, rational grounds for my faith. And I think yours are lacking. You don't need to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You also don't need to be a jerk in the way that you engage in discourse about the faith. But he's either everything that he claimed to be or we're wasting our time. You know, that's why we get into scriptures, this discussion about hot, cold, and lukewarm. And what 
John the Revelator says to the church is that I wish it were one or the other. Because either one of these makes sense. This makes no sense. What I want to propose to you is forget cold, forget lukewarm, turn on the hot. I hope this weekend's weather will get you to think about turning on the hot. <laughs> but I'm talking about turning on the heat of your love and affection for the Lord Jesus, being courageous and bold, not being a jerk, but knowing that you have an answer for the hope that you have and being ready to give that defense. In his memoir, pastor and author Eugene Peterson wrote about when his son came home from his university studies in creative writing and told his dad, Eugene Peterson, about what he was learning. The son, whose name was Leif, said, Dad, novelists only write one book. They find their voice, they find their book, and then they write it over and over. William Faulkner wrote one book. Ann Tyler wrote one book. Ernest Hemingway wrote one book. And that seemed abstract enough to Eugene Peterson until a few days later when his son said to him, remember what I said about novelists only writing one book? Well, you only preach one sermon. And if <laughs> Eugene Peterson was hurt by these comments. After all, he didn't repeat himself in the pulpit. He dealt with different genres from the Bible. He worked hard to apply the scriptures to all the different facets of his people's life. But one Sunday morning, after hearing his father preach, Leif came to his dad, Eugene Peterson, and said, Well, Dad, that was your sermon. I've been listening to that sermon all my life. Your one sermon, your signature sermon. And his comments were not a critique of his father. It was a peek into his genius. And at Eugene Peterson's funeral, his son Leif delivered a very moving eulogy. And he distilled his dad's one sermon. And he said this, quote, For years you'd steal into my room at night and whisper softly to my sleeping head. It's the same message over and over. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. Essentially, what Eugene Peterson's son was saying by telling his dad that he had one sermon was that there was a core message from which he never departed. And that was the good news of God's redeeming love in Jesus Christ. And of course, he worked this message out in a thousand different ways. This is the man that wrote the book that Christ plays on 10,000 stages. But he remained true to that singular gospel. Listen, family, this is our responsibility to the Lord and to our neighbors. We only have one sermon, and it's the only sermon we need. And if we would effectively bridge from our good work in the world to the good news of Jesus Christ, then we must be a people that knows the word. 
We must know our message. Not just isolated proof texts that you use to support what you already want to believe. But we must know the deep structure of scripture. We must understand redemptive history. We must possess command of theological arguments, thematic trajectories, cultural context, so that we know how to think clearly about the word and intersect it with the world. Let me give you an application as I close. As we think about witness, our healing ministry, and our witness, the way that our healing ministry makes a way for the word and and our calling to make uh, our appeal to the world, I want you, I'm serious about this, I'm asking you, I want you to write down the names of a few neighbors, even if it's only one or two. And I want you to pray for them as a regular rhythm in your life that God would give you the opportunity to bring his healing into their lives in whatever ways they are wounded and need healing. And not only that, I want you to pray that as you bring God's healing into the life of those neighbors whose names you've written down, that the Lord would use that healing ministry to start to work on their plausibility structure, making them more curious and making Jesus come across as more believable. And as your healing ministry begins to work on their plausibility structures, I want you to ask the Lord to make you faithful and bold to hold out the hope and the light of the gospel to them, being prepared with an answer for the hope that you have. And finally, I want you to pray that the Lord would draw them into the orbit of our community at whatever level that may be, whether it's just they come to our neighborhood parties, they come to our barbecues, or they join us for service opportunities in the neighborhood, or even coming into worship at whatever level that God would bring them into our orbit. I want you to think about that. It's... The growth of the church is no mystery. It's each member of the body taking personal responsibility for being the real deal before God and neighbor. Being the real deal and engaging with our beloved neighbors. It doesn't matter how much theology you know at the end of the day. It doesn't matter what kind of possession of church history you know if you aren't doing the 101 straightforward christian life of living out the faith that we hold and holding out the faith that we have to our neighbors we are living a severely stunted life in christ and it's compromising to our mission but i want you to think about it god delights to answer bold prayers like these and don't you count anybody out Don't you count anybody out. I love to remind you all because I am a trophy of the Lord's grace that I would have been the guy that you counted out. I would have been the one who says, don't waste your time with him. He's so far gone and he's been inoculated against the Christian faith because he grew up a preacher's kid. And he thinks he knows the faith, but he couldn't be farther away. And God broke through to me. 
And each one of us knows that our personal testimony is that nobody needs the grace of God more than me. And no one is greater evidence of the Lord's ability to break through the darkness and to shine his glorious light and to pull people out of the fire into his marvelous light than our own lives. Nobody's too far gone. Nobody's too far off. Nobody's too broken. Nobody's too corrupt. Nobody's too sinful. Nobody's too rebellious. Nobody is too out of pocket for the Lord to redeem. Our sins are great, but his grace is greater. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. That's our message. That's our story. And I want to speak to you. If you are someone in here today who would say, I'm not a Christian, but I'm curious. I want you to know we could not be more delighted that you are here with us. It is a tremendous honor to us. And it was always God's design that people like you would feel like you could journey with the church in the context of Christian worship and in the context of community. We know that there's a lot of things that you have to consider But I want you to think about the things we've said today. What is your plausibility structure? I know that you believe strongly in moral choices and whatnot, but how do you even ground your morality? How do you determine what is right and what is wrong, and how do you do so in a way that's not arbitrary? There are so many questions we want to invite you to consider, but most importantly, we want you to consider what kind of difference it could make in your life if you just considered what it meant That Jesus is Lord, and he extends his love to people like you. That the only thing you need is your nothing. God invites you to come to him with your nothing, saying, I got nothing. I can't work my way in. I can't earn my way in. I can't put you on my debt. I can't impress you with my good deeds. I need Christ. I just need Jesus. What he did, his life lived for me, his righteousness gifted to me. And the death that he died took away the penalty that hung over me. And now I'm free to live a life of love. I'm free to serve. I'm free from the opinions of others. I have the hope of glory. And things might be rough in my life right now, but I'm on my way to the promised land. There's nothing like being loved by God and knowing it changes absolutely everything. We want to invite you into that. And if you want to talk more about that, Grace Mosaic members, raise your hands, please. Any of these fine folk would be delighted to talk with you, go out to coffee with you, grab a drink with you. And so would Pastor Joel and I or any of the leaders of our church. I just want this to be a place where you feel like you can belong, but you also know that we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe in the historic Orthodox Christian faith, and we have reasons, and we're glad to share them with you. We would love for you to be a part of this family by faith alone in Christ alone. We're glad you're here. But brothers and sisters, members of Grace Mosaic, let's take personal responsibility for specific neighbors, putting them on our list. Wouldn't it be amazing to be able to tell someone, I've been praying for you by name every day or every week for a year. And this is what I prayed for you. And this is everything I've seen God do in your life. Wouldn't that be an amazing, beautiful testimony? Let's make sure that's the case. Let's make it our prayer that the healing ministry of Grace Mosaic would make room for the word. And when it does, that the Lord would give us the grace, the wisdom, and the courage to make our appeal to the world. Amen. Let's pray. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.